Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to the 15th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and it's always a pleasure to feature top-notch professional athletes that really set the tone for today's athletes and stars and the, and the direction of the sport that they were prolific in. Uh, this episode, it's such an honor and a privilege to talk to my first Olympic athlete, actually. Uh, this gentleman, uh, one of the most decorated athletes in track and field history, he won the Olympic gold medal in 1996 on U.S. soil in Atlanta, also three-time world champion decathlete in 1991, 1993 and 1995 held the world record for most points in the decathlon in 1992 and that and that was a special accomplishment we're going to talk about why that was special with 8891 points and held that mark for nearly seven years he released a powerful autobiography in 2012 called clearing hurdles the quest to be the world's greatest athlete it is my pleasure and honor to feature the prolific Dan O'Brien. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Yes, indeed. Pleasure. And, 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 and where, you know, the, the show's called Where They At. So where you at? What you doing now and everything? <laughs> you know, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, I moved to Arizona almost 20 years ago. It was a year after the Olympics, 19, um, it's been more than 20, I guess, in 1997. Wow. I came, I came to Arizona just to visit some friends and to come see an event. Next thing you knew, I was renting, and I rented for a winter and said, you know what? I've lived my entire life in cold weather climates. It's time for some sunshine. And I, I lived in Idaho and went back and forth for a couple of years, Idaho and Arizona. Finally settled here in Arizona. And my wife and I, we just absolutely love it. Um, it it's hot in the summertime, sure, but it's easy living the rest of the year. That is outstanding. And uh, I, I wanted to, I, I was very interested in your training and what you're doing. You're training athletes. I mean, you trained Pablo Sandoval a few years ago. Uh, talk about how you're able to inspire others and pay forward what you've learned in the lessons in your life. Well, what's interesting is even today, um, you know, nothing in my life has really been able to compare with the the passion, the thrills, um, the direction, and, the, and, and really the intent that I had when I was a competing athlete. That, I think that's one of the toughest things as an athlete is to be finished because as an athlete, you wake up with this intent. I'm going to win a gold medal. I'm going to train my ass off today. You know, all you have to do is wake up and just put forth on trying to reach your goal. And when that's gone, man, whew, you know, I, I really struggled for a lot of years. I just didn't have the same passion. I didn't have the same drive in anything. But the one thing that wow. got me the closest was working with young athletes, was working with kids, um, helping them reach their goals, helping them achieve the things they wanted to achieve athletic, athletically, but not just athletically, but just, just in life as well, and to let them know that if you continue to work. So a good friend of mine um, owns a gym called Triple Threat Performance. Uh, the gym's been located in four different locations here in the Valley. He and I started working together. He was a strength coach at Scottsdale Community College. And I was a gym owner for about three years and decided, you know what? I don't want to be the owner. I want to let somebody else own the thing um, because I just, I like coaching. I didn't want to do the, the business aspect of it or the, or the, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to take the money, uh, you know, pay, pay employees, that sort of stuff. So He's, uh, he's owned this gym, Triple Threat Performance, and 
he had a location in Tempe, Arizona, and we did a lot of draft prep guys, mm. guys coming from college, getting ready for the NFL. I think one That's year right. we had about one year we had about 25 guys in. Um, but we, you know, we prepared a lot of guys to, in, in a five-year period to get ready for the draft. But one day, um, an athlete comes in with his agent, and he introduces himself as Pablo Sandoval. He'd like to lose weight before the season started. And what's interesting is I thought the player, I thought Pablo was the agent, and I thought the agent was Pablo. That's how out of shape he was. Mm. Uh, this guy he, wow. he weighed 280 pounds he was just round and everybody's telling me no that's Pablo he's a third baseman for the San Francisco Giants and I was absolutely amazed and so um, Pablo trained with us two three times a day we had food service in the gym so Pablo was eating the food we were preparing for him but coach Ethan Banning at Triple Threat Performance did all of his strength training managed his diet and then I did his running and conditioning and I just, you know, was around to mentor the guy. And, you know, what was interesting is um, it, it's tough to tell a young athlete who's making that much money how they need to live their lives. Mm. You know, it, it's one of the most mm. difficult things. You know, you think about a young NBA star, 20, 21 years old, the guy's making $7 million a year. You know, you try to tell him what's right and wrong and how he should, you know, how he should live his life. And, and it's a very difficult thing to do. So, um, you know, with Pablo, we had to immerse him into the gym. We had to say, look, spend all your free time here because in his free time, he liked to socialize and he liked to, he liked to eat and drink. Yep. And so, you know, for him to lose that weight, he had to buy into the system and he was able to do that. So he came to us at 280. He showed up under 240 pounds to the first day of spring training. Mm -hmm. And the San Francisco Giants were just thrilled with that. Yes. Well, the off the off season comes. Pablo went home to Venezuela. He ate, he drank, he blew himself back up. We did that two years in a row. And you know, after you do that a couple of times, you know, it's it's hard to tell the athlete, you know, what what they should really be doing. And so, you know, he spent about three years with us, and then uh, and then he no longer was uh, training with us after that. But I think you know he got what he wanted because that was a big contract year. Mm -hmm. He played well with the Giants, and he signed a big deal with the Red Sox. But it's, it was a real experience for us to see a transformation like that. And, you know, we lost 40 pounds in, you know, uh, I'm going to say three or four months. Yeah, right, right. Wow, and, that, and that's, that's amazing. And, and, and now, now today, uh, who are you working with now? Anyone you're working with or just young athletes, young up-and-coming athletes that you're looking to follow in your footsteps? Um, so yeah, now the gym, now we're in North Scottsdale mm -hmm. and we mostly train, uh, high school kids. Um, okay. what's, what's interesting is I, I love working with the pro guys, love getting them ready for their season. We do train a handful of major league baseball players in the, in the, in the spring before spring training starts. Mm -hmm. Um, but our forte is high school baseball, high school football, um, girls, volleyball, track and field. I work, I work with a handful of track and field kids, but what you find with professional athletes is they rarely stay at one gym for more than a year or two. There's wow. always a different gym, a flavor of the month. Hey, you know what? All my buddies are training up the road. I'm going to go train there next year. Mm -hmm. But our, uh, our consistency and our bread and butter has been this high school group of athletes. And we, uh, we, we train kids just down the street from a big high school called Chaparral High School. So difficult to make that high school varsity baseball team. Ooh. You've got to have private co coaching. You've got to have private training. And so when they come to us, we get them on the right track and we don't teach the skills at all. Mm -hmm. We don't teach them any of the skills. We just make them a better athlete. 
Killing, killing. While talking with the one and only Dan O'Brien, Olympic gold medal winning decathlete from the 1996 games in Atlanta. Pleasure to have him on this 15th edition of where they at. Uh, so yes. So Dan, the Olympics, as yes. you know, the big news is that it has been postponed for a year. It will happen in 2021. Very, very weird times that we're going through right now. Um, this, this, this pandemic is really, uh, is really struck in all of us with loved ones that we've kn- know and friends, et cetera, et cetera. How would you, prepare if it was your situation where say it was 1996 and the Atlanta games got moved to 1997 how what would be your mental process and your planning to be able to get you back to the tip-top shape you need to be to go into because right around this time is the U.S. Olympic trials soon so how would you change your approach with the extra year of preparation you know, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about, you know, myself as an athlete, what I would do to, to deal with this, you know, with the Olympics moving back a year. First of all, I think the most important thing would be figure out how to get over the anticipation and, and the disappointment. Because athletes at this time, here we are in April, athletes are really gearing up. They're probably six weeks, eight weeks away from Olympic trials, you know, maybe 10 weeks from those Olympic trials to make the team. So athletes were in you know, arguably the best shape of the best shape of the year. Um, but just them saying, okay, you know, we're not going to have an Olympic trials. We're not going to have an Olympics this year. Oh, such a letdown. And you hear from athletes like Nathan Adrian and swimming and Simone Biles, who were so looking forward to the, to this maybe being their last Olympic games right. and being done at the end of the season, they've got to push forward. Allison Felix in track and field, you know, she's getting a little bit older. She's got a daughter now. She was saying this is going to be her last chance to be on an Olympic team. It would be her fifth Olympic team. So you have to just almost shut down at this point. Athletes in the sport of track and field, they need to rest when they can get the rest. The world championships last year didn't go off until October. Mm-hmm. And so usually that's usually during September and part of October, those athletes are resting and then they get back into their training but this year they didn't hardly get any time off. So I would take this opportunity to get the rest I need, let any injuries I have uh, uh, just repair themselves. Um, But the problem with track and field is there may be some track meets at the end of the summer, depending on what this, what happens, we could see some track meets in August, even September that these athletes can get into because when, when track athletes at home, they don't make any money. They need to go run in races, present themselves, do, you know, meet their sponsor obligations and things like that. So, um, you know, I would rest. Uh, as a decathlete, I probably would just write the season off and say, look, I'm not going to do a decathlon this year. Try to get as much rest as I can. But as I start planning for next season, um, you know, I would make sure that I had that eight weeks of absolutely no training, which I would designate as probably a August, September of, of this season. So, uh, I think more than anything, it's it's a mental change. It's a mental shift of of the anticipation and the urgency of your training. Now you have to set that aside and say, I have to save that for next year. Mm, interesting, interesting. And what is your take on Michael Phelps? Like pretty much he's been talking about a lot of athletes could go through some mental strife. And from the standpoint of even attempted suicides. What is your take on that? On how the how these athletes can really um, have some have some depression issues that, that could turn possibly fatal. What's your take on on his on his assessment? 
Well, you know, I'll, I'll answer that. But first, you know, let me tell you, during my career, I remember that I would get up for the world championships. I would get up for the Olympic Games, and it always happened at the end of the summer. And then after that event was over, I was depressed. Mm. I was depressed for a couple of weeks. You know, sometimes it took two or three weeks to get over this because you do ramp up. You ramp up physically. You ramp up emotionally. And an Olympic athlete, he is just on the absolute razor's edge of fitness. His fitness level, if he trained too much, he'd fall off a little bit. So you are just trying to find that perfect balance in everything when you go to an Olympic Games, you need to be ready on that day and, and ready on that day in your event at that moment. They prepare just for moments, hours, you know, years for just a moment. Um, and getting over that took some help. Getting over that depression, that post, you know, that postseason depression. I had to work with a sports psychologist. I had to, I had to work with, uh, you know, somebody who really uh, helped me understand. Um, just Dr. how Reardon. to deal with it. Yeah. Dr. Reardon. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Jim Reardon. And not only was it from a sports standpoint, it was, uh, it was life, you know, before we even started talking about sports, he was my sports psychologist, but even before we started talking about sports, he was my psychiatrist. Yes. And he, you know, we, he said, look, if you can clean up the mental things in your life, you're going to be a better athlete. And so that's where we started everything. And so as I dealt with some of that depression and depression, I think all athletes, uh, you know, have to overcome it at some point because we can't always live on the highs. We ramp ourselves up, we get going. And all of a sudden now it's either taken away from us, it's over, it's gone. And so even, even, you know, and I remember listening to Bruce Jenner speak when I was a younger athlete in 1976, he wins the Olympic gold. And he says, when he won the gold medal, it was the greatest day and the saddest day of his life, because now the pursuit of it was gone. When I won the gold medal, I thought, I, I dreamt that when I win the gold medal, I'm gonna wake up the next day and I'm gonna feel different. And I remember winning the gold medal in Atlanta and I woke up the following day and you know what? I felt exactly the same, nothing wow. happened. I was not a different person. I had the gold medal, it was sitting over there on my bookshelf, but I wasn't a different person and so there, there, there has to be, you know, some work that goes into accepting the fact and, and coming back down to earth. And, and that's the thing that an athlete deals with. He, he lives on these highs. How do you come back down to earth now? You know, and I, and I love the scene in, in Rocky three when, you know, he's training on the beach and his wife is saying, what's wrong? And he says, I'm scared. And she says, you know, when they stop chanting your name, what's life going to be like then? When they stop chanting your name, Rocky, it's just yes. going to be us. And that's a hard thing for an athlete to, to deal with. So a change like this, I, 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 I tell these athletes, get a little help. Look it mm -hmm. up online. How do I deal with some of the depression that I'm dealing with by putting the Olympics back a year, um, postponing? You have to have a, a mind. You have to have a shift, a mind shift to be able to handle that. And as an athlete, you're like a carpenter. You got a toolbox and you got all these different tools in it. Here's my physical tools. Here's my skills and my repetitions. And here's my mental game as well. How many tools can you fit in the toolbox? Because at some point you're going to need to reach in there and get the tool that's right for the job. And if you don't have the tools to handle what's going on right now, it might show you that you have some gaps in your overall program. 
Wow. Well, it's deep. That's really deep. And that's and and with Michael Phelps speaking about that, you know, because he he talks about suicidal thoughts and I'm like, wow, you know, it's really deep. And thanks for breaking that down for sure. Uh, and, and here with Dan O'Brien on the 15th episode of Where They At. And we're going to talk about your upbringing, Dan. Um, OK. And with you being adopted, uh, your parents, Jim and Virginia O'Brien, they adopted six children. And the love, the spirituality, the cultural diversity of those children all adopted, um, the work ethic that they instilled as well. How did that family dynamic mold you to the man you are today? You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I've had an opportunity to, to speak on my upbringing uh, quite a bit, but it's really kind of been relevant um, lately, um, I think, because um, my mother passed away four years ago. God, God rest her soul. Oh, and um, my father got really sick last year. Um, I, he lives in Red Bluff, California, just north of Sacramento, about mm -hmm. an hour and a half. And um, I got a chance to go over and spend some time with him and see him. Um, and luckily, he's doing much better right now. But, oh, you know, my, my parents um, adopted us when they were in their mid 40s. Okay, so um, when I was, you know, when I was four, my dad was 44. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, and that's old to, you know, a little bit older to be uh, an adoptive parents, but then, you know, not only was it myself, but we were five other adopted kids. My mom has two biological kids of her own that were 16, 17 years older than I was when I was adopted at two. And so she had a, she had a family before, and then they adopted the six kids. We never lived. It was the six of us and the two older ones, they were out on their own doing their own things. But, um, it was an interesting family. And what was neat about the family was we grew up with without seeing any color. I have a yes. Native American sister. I got a Hispanic brother. I have two Korean sisters. And then I have another sister who's biracial like myself. And I remember when we were little, we could hardly wait for my little brother, Tommy, to grow up because we thought he was going to be able to teach us all Spanish, right? Uh, you know, it's just because he's a little Latino kid. And it was just like, oh, man, you know, we didn't know any better. But but, you know, we grew up and, and it just, you know, going to school and seeing you know, uh, Hispanic kids and Asian kids, I, it, you know, it, it all felt normal to me. What was interesting, though, was the looks we got from other people. You know, we grew up in mm -hmm. Southern Oregon, right. predominantly white community. Right. I think there was only one other kid in my school that was African-American, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very interesting to just kind of grow up in that. And, you know, I, when you meet people and you, you get a chance to spend time with them, um, you know, I, one of the things that I did when I, when I was growing up, I made a point to fit in anywhere that I could. Uh -huh. I, played, I played sports, I played in the band, but I was friends with everybody at school. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my sister, my sister Patricia, she really wasn't friends with anybody. She was kind of at odds with the whole world. And I always kind of wondered how was I able to go through life and fit in like that and see her struggle a little bit. But, you know, the one thing that my, my parents really taught us was just how to love each other, you know, how to, how to, how to care for, you know, people around you. We had, we had, a, you know, we had jobs when we were little, when I say jobs, we all had chores around the house. We grew up on a farm. There were things that were expected of us. And so um, we knew what it meant to be, you know, disciplined in doing those chores and what happened and the consequences. If you didn't, you know, if you didn't, if I didn't water the cows, then you know what? Uh, there were, there were, the cows went without water. And so you understand mm -hmm. that, you know, my role in this family is to is to help out and do 
you know, do what I'm supposed to do. And I think because of that, when I found sports, I was highly dedicated to the different things that I was passionate about. I mean, and nobody in my family, my brother wrestled and played some football, but nobody else in the family really did a whole bunch from a sports standpoint. So I was outside playing my playing ball myself. I had a kickback, you know, I had a pitchback machine or a, a, one of those bungee things. I'd throw the yep, ball and yep. it'd come back. I remember throwing the football on the roof and catching it on the other side, you know, it'd bounce and bounce a Nerf ball. So I, I just, you know, but I, I love sports so much that I could just spend all day doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, another passion that I had was music. You know, yes. I had a friend. I had a friend in the fourth grade who trumpetta, trumpetta, trumpet yeah. playing. We gonna talk yeah. about that in a second. <laughs> so, you know, but I had a friend whose dad owned a music store. He mm -hmm. played the trumpet. He and I were best friends. I uh, I went and got a trumpet. Next thing you know, I'm sitting second chair in the band next to him all the way through high school. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it, and I was really getting good. And you know, I was able to you know, just, just play some, you know, just pick up the trumpet. I could, I could pick up the trumpet, play the national anthem and different songs and kind of feel, you know, my way through some jazz, you know, through, through some jazz songs and things like that. But at the same time, I was getting really good at sports. Uh -huh. I started on the high school football team. And so I had to make a decision whether I was going to continue to play music or do sports. And, and I, and I chose sports. So, um, but no, growing up, my parents taught us the, um, you know, the, 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 just what it meant to work hard. And I remember one time my mom, she used to pile the chores on me because at the time I was the oldest adopted boy in the family and I was chopping wood and digging ditches and doing all this stuff. And one day I think I chopped wood for two straight hours, three straight hours. And I wow. said to her, I was like, you know, one day I'm not going to have to do all this work. And she's just like, what do you think? You're going to work the rest of your life. And I was like, you're crazy. No way. I didn't know what it meant to get out in the real world and actually have a job and work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Because, and, and you know what? And it was the hard work at that time that prepared you for you to be able to do what you want to do now. It's do what you need to do until you do what you want to do for sure. And my mom used to tell me that, you know, you don't ever finish anything you start. I was a project guy. Oh, I'm going to do this project. Or I'm going to start something over here. And then I get halfway through and I'd get onto something else. And, and I just think maybe, you know, not out of spite, but I think because of that, I chose the hardest event in track and field. And that was the thing that I did finish. I was able to follow through on that. Oh, that's for sure. That is for sure. <laughs> and definitely. And then some. And, and now, and it's funny, you said in your book that um, you said, I'm a quote, I'm a band geek who happened to play sports, <laughs> which was deep. And, and it's funny, I'm a Trump professional trumpet player myself. So okay. and, and it's and, and it's funny, like I did a lot of sports until high school, but then I decided trumpet was the thing. Okay. Sports has always been a passion. So now, so I, as I've gotten older, I've been able to do both, you know, be okay. involved in, in media. But, but as a trumpet player now, let me ask you, you know, which trumpet players did you, did you listen to? Did you listen to Dizzy, Clifford Brown, Woody Shaw? Like, who, you know, who are the cats for you? <laughs> you know, and, and that's what I'm grateful for. Um, spending time in the music, spending time in music is I got a chance to learn um, you know, got a chance to learn about that type of music. And I, I mean, I can throw some, you know, I, I, my trumpet guy was Maynard Ferguson. Oh, yes. All right. And he just, he just was a whaler, you know, mm -hmm. and I loved it. And he'd play, you know, one of the you know, Birdland and, 
yep. you know, I just, I just love the way that he just belted everything out, you know, and I, I think, you know, I, I didn't listen to a lot of miles, you mm. know, when I, when I was a kid, but when I got older and you learn about his story, you realize what, what, what a genius, what a genius he was. That's right. Um, That's right. Oh, but yeah. it was Ren Renaissance man through the test. Yeah, of time. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I, I can, you know, I can, when I see, you know, when I, when I see a movie with, with good music, um, like the fabulous Baker boys. Okay. Oh, it's it's yeah. one of my favorite movies just because it's all about a guy playing, you know, all about a guy playing piano and he loves it. And he, you know, as long as he's playing, he's happy. Um, you know, the bird is one of my favorite movies as well. Oh yeah. Charlie um, Parker. Yes. Um, absolutely. Um, not documentary, so, biopic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, my love for music just didn't keep me kind of in the trumpet. It kind of, it kind of spread me out. And I'm really grateful that I had a chance to just learn about jazz and learn about, learn about music uh, as a kid. Wow. That, that's deep because I saw that picture in your book of you holding the trumpet. I was like, Oh, <laughs> Dan and I have to talk about that. <laughs> and marching band was fun for me because it was all about just blaring, you know, mm -hmm. and every, every remember we didn't have a very big band, but yep. the places that we went and we competed in marching band, we always got high marks because our trumpet section was the best. Ooh, wow. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's the one thing I regret. I regretted not doing marching band in my okay. high school years. Cause I did orchestra jazz band concert band, like was more classical jazz. And, yeah. and, and, and I think my chops when I, because I went into the Eastman school of music after that. And then my chops were, they were good. They were good, but not like I couldn't wail, you know? So as I've gotten older and, and you know how it is, as you get older, you get wiser about your body. You get to know, you know, the tricks of the trade, you know, physically, sure. you know, and the trumpet's a physical instrument so wow wow so that's unbelievable so now being a trumpet player and being all state in oregon i saw that you were all state football in oregon um now who are the, who are any any nfl guys that you played against or, or were teammates of yours you know no uh okay. actually i went to a small high school mm -hmm. um and i remember i rem so you know in in sports sports were you know something that i fell in love with at a, at a young age i wanted to go to the olympics when I saw the 1980 U.S. hockey team Ooh. win the gold. Yes, and indeed. that was, you know, I was 13 years old, and I'm watching this hockey team. Hey, man, these guys are a bunch of college guys, you know? They're playing all right. these professional teams. And <laughs> nobody was more professional than the Red Army Russian yes. hockey team, you know? And That's it's right. just like... CCCP. And then I remember prior to the Olympics the the russians beat like the new york rangers and the islanders and we're thinking man these guys are unbeatable you know yeah. and so we get a chance to play them but i remember the day the us played them i woke up that day and i saw the headlines and you know it, it was there was no social media so you're hearing it on the radio or you're reading it in the newspaper mm -hmm. and so i thought i just i felt a sense of pride and i thought wow if I could someday wear that USA uniform and feel from the country what I'm feeling right now, that, that'd be the proudest moment of my life. And so I thought about being an Olympian at that age. But I was also the kid, you know, in the fifth grade, sixth grade, I'd watch Monday Night Football on a little black and white TV because right. it was our watching second Watching Drew Pearson. You got Drew yeah. Pearson. Yeah, <laughs> watching, you know, watching the black and white TV because everybody else was watching something else in the, in the mm -hmm. den on the color TV, but I'd be the only kid in the, you know, in the family watching sports. But yeah, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I want to be number 33 and play for the Dallas Cowboys. You know, mm -hmm. that, was, that was my thing. Um, but as I got older, certainly, 
Um, you know, I learned what it was that I was good at. I was a good runner, but I was small. I was small for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, in the ninth grade, I think I was five foot two, five foot three, you wow. know, maybe five foot five with the afro. With afro. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it wasn't until between the 10th and 11th grade that I grew a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. I grew, I just, I got faster. I had some great coaches. I mean, I had coaches just, you know, pounding me at that mm -hmm. point is just potential, potential. You got potential. I, I mean, yeah. I heard potential the last two years of high school. Probably like Dick, Dick Vitale way. Potential, potential, potential. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I had, you know what though? My high school varsity football coach punted in the, in the NFL. His name was Lee Schroeder and okay. he spent a couple of years with the Bears and he was a punter. And so he had this experience, but he was a hard ass, man. He, um, he really pushed us. And he got on me in the 11th grade. 11th grade, I played football in junior high, but I didn't play football in high school till the 11th grade. And he used to just work me over because he didn't think I was giving 100% effort. Mm -hmm. But I, had, I didn't know the game, you know. I didn't know how to protect myself. I didn't know the game, you know. But there, I can remember there was a time when I was on the scout team and I was running the opponent's offenses against the number one defense. And one day I just decided, man, I'm going to run hard. I'm going to get hit hard. And it changed everything for me. I just all of a sudden one day just decided I'm not going to be scared to get popped anymore. I'm not going to be scared to get hurt anymore. And it just changed the way that I played football. And I think about halfway through that 11th grade, I was just a different guy. Wow, deep. And, and, and speaking of, you know, after you graduated from high school, you ended up getting the opportunity to go to University of Idaho, being a vandal. And, yeah. um, and the thing was that, which is interesting, though, like you, you had a hard time getting track scholarships and you weren't really <clears throat> focused on making track. Your, you know, you weren't sure, you know, you were kind of like you, you were you kind of lost in your way from that standpoint. It kind of uh, happened in college where you went into some um, some problems and everything. But those problems made you the man you are today, for sure. You know, with alcohol, et cetera. Talk about that transition into college and what you went through and how you really just learned tons of lessons through that. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect from college. Um, when I was in high school, you know, I, I certainly talked to my high school guidance counselor. Um, I talked to my track coach, but I made a point when I was in the 12th grade that I needed to get a scholarship. My parents couldn't pay for college, you know, even half a, half a scholarship. I needed to get a full ride scholarship to go to college. And um, the, the, spring, the spring quarter was track and field. And I dropped every, I mean, everything was secondary to me being the best track and field athlete I could be. Mm -hmm. And I got, uh, I got some offers. I went, I went for a visit to the, to Oregon State University. That's right. And I was glad that I didn't go to school there because they dropped the program. They dropped track and field uh, a couple years later and wow. University of Oregon offered me half of a scholarship. And I, you know, would have loved to have been a duck because you grow up in the state of Oregon, you want to be an Oregon duck. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody does. And Hence Nike, Nike from there. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and it was Tracktown USA. Mm. Um, but I got this call from this coach at the University of Idaho. And he said, hey, could you fill out the questionnaire? You know, I saw some of your marks. Um, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. And on the questionnaire, I remember I put down all 10 events in the decathlon. And I think I put the triple jump down too. And the coach is like, oh my gosh, you, you can do all these different events. And he came to visit me. The NCAA championships were in Eugene. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it's about 200 miles from Eugene to the town I grew up in, Klamath Falls. And after the track meet was over, he drove the 200 miles, sat in my living room. And I don't think he was leaving until I signed my letter of intent. But he was just like, look, we can give you a full scholarship. But I had, you know, I had people come to the house, like from the Air Force, the Navy, Naval Academy. And, and I thought, hey, this is all great. But I didn't know what you needed to, I didn't know what you needed in high school to get into places like that. And so yes. uh, I think I was very ill prepared to go to college. And, I, you know, my parents didn't help me fill out any of the forms. So when I showed up at college, I hadn't filled out my my um my room you know i didn't i didn't fill out my where where i was going to stay and so i had to do everything on the spot you know the coach recruited me mm-hmm. but i didn't do any of the prep work and so when i got to school they stuck me with another counselor who just said look you know we got to get you in housing and we got to get you here and here and here we got to get you registered for classes and all kinds of things and so uh i mean i was so ill prepared going to college i didn't bring any sheets you know mm. i just brought a sleeping bag and you know, but so I had to learn all this stuff. This is my first time away from home, really. Yeah. So and you had that freedom too. You had that well, freedom. And I, and I did have that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, school and school for athletes wasn't as structured then as it is now. And, you know, from a study table standpoint, and if you, you know, coach can keep track of your grades. And so I really struggled from the academic standpoint. And honestly, I should have been a junior college guy. I should have been a junior college guy first and then went to the division one school because um, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for division one mm-hmm. academics. I wasn't ready for division one, um, you know, social, uh, the, the social aspects of it either, just cause I, I think, you know, I was, I was 18, but I probably was, you know, 16 or 17 from a mental capacity um, and just not ready. And so I went to school, I struggled with grades Mm-hmm. and I lost my scholarship, so I had to go to junior college, and then when I was at junior college, I got my grades back up, and I came back to the Division One, to the Division One school, the University of Idaho, and I remember when I was at Spokane Community College, um, I got offers from Washington, Washington State, and they said, look, yeah. come back and run for us, but I, I felt so much, uh, I felt so much, you know, just uh, loyalty to the coach at the University of Idaho, um, that so, I went back, that I went back and ran my final year at the University of Idaho because he he did so much to help me get into the junior college, and especially when I was struggling, you know, I was I wasn't going to school for a period of time, almost a full year. I didn't go to school, and mm-hmm. I lost that eligibility. And I, I you know, one of the one of the biggest things that I did on my own, and you know, it took a while for me to do it was ask for help. Yes. So, you know, my freshman year, I struggled with grades. So I redshirted my sophomore year. I continued to struggle with grades and it wasn't because I wasn't trying. I mean, it, it was, be, it, it wasn't for that. I couldn't cut it academically. It was because I wasn't trying. I wasn't going to classes. I was partying all the time. And so I definitely lost my way. And so I lost my scholarship and I had to go away from school for a year. I worked as a, uh, as a, as a carpenter's assistant, believe it or not. I sanded cabinets. These guys, uh, these guys in this big machine shop are making these wood cabinets for these wood burning stoves and the, the cutouts would come off the assembly line and I would just sit there with a sander all day long and sand them and smooth them down. But I had to be there at seven in the morning. Ugh. And yep. for, you know, a 20 year old, 21 year old, it's like seven in the morning. And I, and I didn't have a car, so it was about a 20 minute walk. And so I had to get up plenty early and, and, and get there. It's a good um, warm-up for your legs. Good warm-up. But, but I absolutely hated it. But what uh, I do remember is 
when I wasn't in school and I didn't have a scholarship, I would go to campus and sit in the top level of the bleachers at the track and watch people practice mm-hmm. and think to myself, I'll be back someday. And mm-hmm. even through the ups and the downs, especially the downs, I never doubted that someday I was going to be there. I never doubted that someday I was going to accomplish what I had thought about when I was 13, and that was to go to the Olympics. But wow. um, I, re- I remember I was, I was down and out. I lost that, I lost that carpenter job and uh, didn't, you know, I was looking for some other jobs. I had applied as a dishwasher at some places. But I remember on a, on a cold, snowy evening, I just went to my coach's house after not seeing him for almost a year and knocked on his door and said, what do I have to do to get back in school? And it was tough. I remember I stood outside of his house for half an hour just thinking, oh, my gosh, what if he tells me to beat it? You know, what if he tells me to get the hell out of here? It just, and I just said, no, you know what, I, I got to go for it. And so he helped me get into junior college. And because of that, it was, it was you know, it was really a, the, you know, a second chance for me or a third or a fourth chance. And then when I went to junior college, I got introduced to a, a little guy by the name of Dwayne Hartman who was the Spokane community college coach and he just embraced me immediately. You know, I got yes. dropped off with all of my belongings. I sat in his office and he came in and said, we're going to get you taken care of. And I was just like, who's this guy? This mm-hmm. angel, man, this guy's gonna, this guy's gonna help me. He, you know? So he put mm-hmm. me in the lunchroom and I worked for a couple hours a day. I took classes the rest of the day and I trained after that. And so was just, I was so grateful to have that second chance. And so yes. that was really kind of the start of me getting an opportunity to go to the Olympic trials. I went to the Olympic trials in 88. Mm-hmm. That's just right. To, just to get the experience. And it was a great experience. Um, but you know, I gotta, I gotta give that, I gotta chalk that up to the coaches who just stuck with me mm-hmm. and you know, I wouldn't be where I was, you know, I wouldn't be here where I'm at today or with these accomplishments if it hadn't been for coaches. And those coaches were coach Mike Keller and coach Rick Sloan. So you had a way, you had a mindset of letting things roll off your back and and not really emphasizing losses and everything. Um, there was a situation where when you lost a high school football game and, and you were just enjoying yourself after the game with your friends, just laughing and, and, and not really dwelling on that loss. But your father kind of asked you and, and wondered why were you were you not more upset with the loss so but how how has this mindset of yours of of looking forward and not dwelling on the past really helped you in your adversity especially in not qualifying for the olympics in 1988 and 1992 you know when i was a kid um i lost a lot of games uh, little league baseball, basketball games, uh, you know, football in junior high. I remember in junior high, I played on a team. We lost every game one season. Mm-hmm. Some reason, for some reason, losing didn't ever really affect me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never let it get me down. And especially in baseball, you know, I would hit a home run or I would, you know, get to make a great play. And I would take that home with me. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. take the fact that we lost. And we'd get in the car and my dad would go, doggone it, you guys lost again. And I, and I wouldn't even think about it for a second. I was like, yeah, but man, I hit a home run. So I don't know. It's just something in my personality that allowed me to always be positive because I was getting to play. Mm-hmm. I was getting to play the game. And I can just – my favorite place in the world was in the huddle in a football mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. You know, there in the, down on the end, the quarterback on one knee, calling the play, 
and I look around at these guys and I just have to gig. I just would laugh and giggle because mm -hmm. it was the greatest place to be. We'd be right. down one point in basketball with three seconds left on the clock. And I'm like, the coach is all serious. And I'm just like, Oh, this is so exciting. You know, I just love to play the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I lost the state, you know, when we lost the state championships in football, you know, I'm in the locker room. Everybody else is crying. I went into the coach's office and I shook his hand. I said, thank you. You know, I'm all state and wide receiver because of you guys, man. I just, I thank you for the opportunity, but I knew I had basketball starting in a week. Yep. And then when basketball was over, I knew I had track and field starting. And I, I, I can remember, I can even go back to when I was a, when I was a graduating senior we graduate, we got our caps and gowns on, everybody else is hugging and crying. And my buddy and I, Don Sherman, who we were in the band together, we high-fived and said, man, we're out of here. Now our life starts. And so that was kind of how I looked at high school. It was just like, man, just get me through here, get me to the next level of life. And, um, and I think because of that, I was able to accept some of the failures I had later in life. I was able to overcome them and just, just think about the next great opportunity. I went to the 88 Olympic trials. I hurt myself in the second event. I didn't have a chance of making the team, but the lessons I learned there, mm -hmm. meeting Jackie Joyner Kersey and- Yes, because she said you will be the next great. If I worked that, <laughs> yeah. Got to meet mm -hmm. Bob and Jackie and I said, Jackie, you know, I don't love the decathlon. I, I just, you know, I'd rather long jump. I'd rather hurdle. And she said, why not be good at all of them? Be a great decathlete. The, the, the U.S. needs another good decathlete, a great decathlete. And I started thinking then, it's just like, she said, the U.S. needs another Bruce Jenner. And that, that's what she said, because we hadn't won yes. the gold since Bruce Jenner in 76. And so I remember being on the plane, flying home from Indianapolis. But I, I tell you what, saw some amazing things in Indianapolis. Flojo broke the world record. Yes, Carl indeed. Lewis, long jump 28-10 in a driving rain. The golden age. Butch Reynolds <laughs> in the 400 meters. Right, you know, yeah. yeah. And so, but I remember coming back home and thinking, you know what, I'm going to stop trying to get out of the decathlon. I'm going to embrace it. And at that moment, I started calling myself a decathlete because people say, well, what event do you do? And I say, well, I do the decathlon, but I also hurdle and I long jump, but I knew I'm not going to beat Carl Lewis in the long jump. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to beat Carl Lewis in the hundred meters, but I need to be able to beat Flojo's time in the hundred meters. <laughs> yeah. And so but she ran 1046 and I think I had only run like 1060 at the time. And I oh. thought, man, I got to run faster than Flojo if I'm going to do this. And so I changed the way that I ran a little bit and really mm -hmm. studied it. So I just, I embraced the decathlon and that was 1988. Three years later, I was a world champion just yes, by the fact that I, I said it. Now I'm a decathlete. Right. This is the 15th episode of Where They At. My name is Nabate Owls, and I'm talking with the great Dan O'Brien, 1996 Olympic gold medalist, decathlete, one of the most decorated athletes ever. So, Dan, you go into the 92 Olympic trials, but, of course, there was fanfare involving a $25 million Reebok advertising campaign that involved you and Dave Johnson, Dan and Dave. It, there was a lot. There was a lot of obligations for sure. And tell the audience how those obligations and the pressure of of your names being out there, being visible, how it affected your preparation and affected 
your mindset going into the Olympic trials, which unfortunately ended with you not qualifying for the 92 Olympics? You know, 92 was a fantastic year. Um, and I say that because it, it was such a big learning experience for me. I got to do what a lot of track and field athletes never get a chance to, to do. And that was, I, I got treated like an NBA star. I got treated mm -hmm. like, a, a, like, a, like Peyton Manning, you right. know, for, for that year. And track and field athletes don't get to experience that very often, is to right. be in the, the American, America's consciousness um, and transcend your sport just a little bit. And so, um, you know, Reebok decided that they were going to put an ad campaign together with two unknown guys in an unknown event because they were trying to break into the running shoe market. And they started with these horrible looking cross trainers um, and they used <laughs> Dave Johnson and I, and they said, look, we're going to pump you guys up and we're going to, we're going to ask the American public, who's the world's greatest athlete, Dan or Dave. And uh, one of you guys, we believe one of you guys is going to win the Olympic gold medal. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they've got two guys and we were two of the best in the world. We, we absolutely at that time were two of the best guys in the world. I'd won the world championship year the, the year before Dave Johnson had won the Goodwill games two years before that they were banking on, they were banking on us. And so um, of course we said, man, let's do this. You want to, you want to put us in commercials. You want to make us a commercial star. And so that year, you know, Dave and I got featured in, Super Bowl ads. It started Super Bowl Sunday in, in 1992, and they just continued on. And the ads showed us as little kids, and then they they showed you know they showed us training. Who's the world's greatest athlete, Dan or Dave? And they pumped up these cross trainer shoes. Mm -hmm. And Reebok really made a big hit with that. We're starting to make a dent, I think, in Nike's revenue, in Adidas revenue. But they were really trying to break into the market. Um, but I tell kids, it's like, man. We sat courtside at the Laker games, man. We signed autographs at Dick's Sporting Goods for hours and hours. We used to go to big trade shows. And, I mean, we were, Visa would put us in a booth at a trade show, and we would just sign autographs and take pictures. But I tell young kids, it's like, man, we were so famous, we went on the Arsenio Hall show. And kids just look at me like, who? Man, woo, woo, woo. So it's just, it was just like, wow, we got to be stars, okay? Um, but what happens is – we had to, I, Dave lived in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. He was training at Azusa Pacific, but I lived in Idaho. And so every time we wanted to film another commercial, I got on a plane and I flew to LA. And sometimes, you know, I would be there for a week and we would shoot 10 commercials or five or six commercials. But what I remember one day, Dave and I are sitting on the track at, um, you know, at like Mount San, San Antonio Community College where we're shooting and it's two in the afternoon. And I had to think, it's like, man, when was the last time I did a running workout? You know, was that uh -huh. three, four, five days ago? Uh -huh. And so when I came home to Idaho, you know, we would train hard and we would train, get in a regular program. Um, but I remember getting into the spring and there was a real sense of urgency. We've got to get mm -hmm. in better 400 meter shape. We've got to get down the runway more times in the pole vault. Late in the spring, I had developed a stress fracture on the outside of my ankle. So my training almost came to a complete stop. I had to do a lot of stuff in the swimming pool. I was wearing an air cast to, you know, to relieve the tension. I was constant therapy. And so by the time I got to the Olympic trials, I was healthy. My leg felt better and I was able to get through it, but I wasn't at the fitness level that I would have liked to have been at, but I was strong, but my 400 meters I, I thought could have been in better shape. Um, but I went to the Olympic trials in 92, just healthy. And that's what you want an athlete, a decathlete to do is just step to the line healthy.
Yes. Um, but I can remember um, I was dating a high I was dating a high jumper at the time. Um, Tanya Hughes was her name. She's from the okay. University of Arizona, and she was trying to make the team. She was trying to make the team in the high jump, and she right. made the team. So she's on the team and she and I are hanging out in New Orleans where, and who, you know, who, who decided we we're going to have an Olympic trials in New Orleans in July. And it was, you know, it was cool though, was in the evenings, I got there about a week early and in the evenings, man, I, I would go find some red beans and rice, but I just would walk down the street and you just hear this music coming from a hotel That's lobby, right. music coming from a club. You just yep. pop your head in and just being around it was just like, wow, what a, what a magical place. It provided a nice place to, heal from afterwards but uh you know leading into it i felt good and so when i, I but i do remember there was pressure there was mm -hmm. pressure by reebok there was pressure on me because i was one of the favorites but the day i got there for the competition everybody was wearing a white t-shirt that said either dan or dave on it and it was almost like reebok handed t-shirts out to everybody who walked in the front gate and said you know wow. pick your color red or blue dan or dave and you get there, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is crazy. It, you know, nobody comes and watches a decathlon in the first event. Wow. And there were, there were you know, 20,000 people in the stands, and we're just like, goodness, what are we gotten ourselves into? And so the first day went off without a hitch. I long jumped well. I high jumped well. I threw good shot put. My 400 was solid. Um, but I remember there was uh, some guys in the decathlon, you got 35, 40 guys. Some guys will drop out. That's right. And so when they do that, they re- draw the lanes for the 400 the beginning of the day i had like lane two in the 400 but okay. then when they redrew they put me in the outside lane lane eight and i just hated lane eight because you feel like you're running by yourself basically yeah yeah there's nobody to kind of gauge your you know how fast are you going right. with nobody on your outside and so i ran a good 400 but it wasn't great but i was tired oh mm. man i was tired and and you know, it's one of those where you, they're trying to get you off the track so they can get the next heat on. Yep. And I'm just sitting there and sitting there. It's like, okay, that, that's my conditioning level. And that was the heat. And so it took a little bit out of me. But the second day comes around. I'm still in good shape. I run a good hurdle race. I throw decent discus. Mm -hmm. But I was on world record pace till the discus. And I dropped. I, I threw well, but not, not fantastic. So I dropped below world record pace. So I put the world record just out of my, out of my mind. And we get to the pole vault. All right. And so, yeah. you know, the pole vault was never a problem for me up until that point. I was, I was, you know, I had learned a lot from 1990 to 91. I became a much better pole vaulter, but I wasn't horribly experienced in it, especially, you know, in, in a conditions where, you know, you need to make changes, pole changes, step changes and things like that. But I remember in the warmups in the, in the pole vault, my step was off. I just mm -hmm. didn't feel like, I just didn't feel like it was in the right place. And my hands were, my hands were not up early enough. Uh, you know, I struggled a little bit, but I thought, you know what, I, I'll, I'll be it when, you know, when they call my name and it's my turn, I'll be able to, I'll be able to make adjustments. I took mm -hmm. my last warm up jump and then I waited. I, 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 my, I told him my starting height was four meters 80, which is 15 feet, eight inches. And somebody came in at like 14 feet. And so I had to wait 14 feet, 14, three, 14, six, 14, nine, 15, 15. Uh, it just goes slow and slow and two or three guys jump at every bar. And so by the time I took my warm up jump, an hour had gone by before I took my first competitive jump. And so, you know, I'm out there, hundred degree heat, 90% humidity. And, you know, I get close to my turn. And what happens in that heat is you feel warmed up already. 
Right. So you don't stretch as much. You don't move as much. It doesn't take you as many runs, strides, run-throughs to get that feeling that you're warmed up. Mm-hmm. And so I remember on my first attempt in the pole vault, I came down. My step was way out, which means I just didn't warm up enough. You know, my hands get jerked. I go straight up, straight down, and I don't have a chance of making the bar. My second attempt was much better. I just barely touched it, and the bar came off. Well, all of a sudden, on the third attempt, I find myself in a situation that I've never been in before. Third attempt, opening bar in the decathlon, I'm at risk of getting zero points. So now I'm using all my mental skills, my relaxation techniques, everything I can do just to focus, relax, run down the runway, plant the pole, and make this thing. Well, I do. I run down the runway, plant the pole, go up. Couldn't even tell you what happens, honestly. It's still shocking to this day that it just happened so fast and it was over just like that. I don't go over the bar. I land in the pit in front of the bar and I'm, I go into shock immediately. And the shock is what just happened? Oh my gosh, what just happened? Somebody give me another chance. Dave Johnson and I get together. He hugs me. Still, I'm in a state of just, I don't, I don't even think, usually when you take your jump, the official hands you your pole and you walk back to your start. I don't even think I grabbed my pole. I just walked back to my stuff. And I, I mean, I couldn't see straight. And, but you heard the audible gasp in the crowd. Oh. And now all of a sudden the competitors perk up. O'Brien's out. O'Brien's out. <clears throat> now instead of one spot at the, on the Olympic team, now there's another spot available on the Olympic team. Wow. So I'm in shock. Wow. I go to the medical, I go to the, tra- I go to the practice track. And again, even over there, I still, you know, have not really grasped what's happened. Oh my gosh. You know, just this, this is incredible. I didn't make, I got zero points in the pole vault. My massage therapist who traveled the world with me, <clears throat> his name was Brian Tibbetts. I called him bear. Great guy. You know, some, somebody, I, and I love Brian because when I was around him, we didn't talk about track. We didn't talk about work, man. We, 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 just, we just were in the moment. You know, if we were drinking beer, we were drinking beer. You know, it's just like, let's not, let's not stress or think about the future. <clears throat> he was a great guy to be around, but he walked around the practice track with me and he kind of got me settled down a little bit. And I was able to really think what that, you know, what did this mean? Well, it means you're not going to be on Olympic team. So my coaches came and got me and they took me up to the sky box where Visa was in the stadium and I went up there and my mom was up there. So she'd been sitting up there with, uh, with the visa executives all day watching just to get out of the heat. And I just, as soon as I embraced her, I cried, just, just sobbed, just cried. Cause it all kind of hit me all at once. And it's like, Oh man. And so, you know, I don't make a bar in the, in the pole vault. I think I'm done. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just going to watch the rest of the competition. I don't have a chance to make the Olympic team. The guys are too good. And so my coaches come over and they say, here's what we're going to do. We got a plan for you. Cause I didn't have a plan, but my coaches did. And they said, we got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out. We're going to throw the javelin, which is a ninth event. And then we're going to run that 1500 meters at the end. Right. And then you're going to cross the line and you're going to congratulate the guys who are going to the Olympics. Yes. Yeah. I thought, Oh brother, do that's I need f- to really finish? And they said, yes, this is, this is what you have to do. And that's what your mom always said. Finish what you started. Yeah. Yes, sir. And so I, I, before that, but I remember before that time, 
I had been in two or three decathlons that weren't going well, and I withdrew from them. And, you know, if it's cold weather or, you know, what, I got to save my legs for the next one type of type of scenario. But I remember going back out there in New Orleans and finishing that decathlon. And that was the last decathlon that I, that was and up until that point, you know, from that point on so in my career, excuse me, I never withdrew from another decathlon. It was a great learning lesson, but I threw javelin very well. I think I got a personal best. And then I ran the easiest 1500 meters of my life. And it was over, you know, the guys made the team. I didn't make the team. I did a ton of interviews. And because I think the way that I handled it by finishing, um, by showing good sportsmanship, a lot of people, you know, they wanted me on their talk shows. And then all of a sudden I became kind of this spokesperson for, you know, what happens when you, what happens when you fail? You got to be a good sportsman about it. But it all took me back again to losing as a child losing a high school state football championship, you know, always, always looking at the next great opportunity. And if I were, you know, if I were three or four years older, that might've been more devastating because it, it's closer to the end of my career, but it was early on in my career. I was able to recover from it. And people ask me, it's like, how do you, how were you able to overcome that, that failure? How were you able to overcome that adversity? And I didn't think about it then, but I look back on it now and think all the things were in place for me. I had a support team. I lived in a town that embraced me. I had great training partners. My coaches helped me get back up from it. Could I do it myself? Yes, but it could have been difficult. Could have been really difficult. Mm -hmm. But I remember when I got home and I got off the plane in Moscow, Idaho, you know, a hundred people met me, patted me on the back and said, you know, we're still with you. You know, I remember, you know, getting back to my apartment at a hundred voice, you know, I had a hundred messages on my answering machine. And I had to listen to everyone. And it was like somebody died. Oh, Dan, we're so sorry. But Jackie Joyner called me. Mm. Jackie Joyner called me later that day in my room with Bob. And they said, Dan, just don't do anything drastic. Don't do anything drastic. You'll get your next chance. And it was just like some of the greatest advice. And I remember going to a golf tournament. A friend of mine was playing in Moscow, Idaho, going to a golf tournament called the Soul Survivor, like on the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. and I'm walking around and this little Italian lady comes up to me and she's so short. I got to kneel down and she gives me a hug and she says, Dan O'Brien, we still love you. And it was like, wow, man, you know, <laughs> I, and that was, that meant a lot to me. Right. So uh, I was able to overcome that. So I go to the Olympics in 92 and Dave gets the bronze, but I, while I'm at those Olympics, I see some just enormously motivating things. Derek Redman in the 400 meters, from Great Britain um, was yes. he pulls his hamstring. He's a guy who might get a medal, but mm-hmm. he pulls his hamstring on the first turn and then he limps around That's the track. Right. And, and they said, why did you do it? And he said, I'd never not finished the race. His dad, I don't know how his dad did it, jumped over the fence on That's the barrier, deep. and they finished it together. Everybody in the stadium was crying. Yes. Oh my gosh. I was in the broadcast booth kind of standing behind the announcers and I was just like, I mean, chills running down my arms. Now Still does watching. to me every time. Yeah, every time I watch it. So yes, sir. Inspirational. Yeah. Yes. And then I saw Kevin Young break the world record in the 400 meter hurdles later, later in the week. And so at that Olympics, I thought, you know what? I'm not done in this summer. Mm-hmm. I got something in me. And so my coach Sloan, Coach Sloan and I, we found a track in Barcelona and we started to train immediately. And I met the promoter for the Decastar Decathlon in Talence, France. And his name is Marc Marais, and mm-hmm. just a total Frenchman. And I said, you know what? 
I'm going to come to Talon's and break the world record. And immediately when mm. I said that, oh, the pressure was on. Mm. And mm. I, I just think I had to put pressure on myself during my career to do well. It really, it really gave me just one chance. You know, there was, there was no looking back, no looking to the sides. It's like, I got to forge straight ahead. And I went to Talon's and I wasn't in the best shape of my life. I wasn't, you know, as light as I would have liked to have been because of my stress fracture. And I spent, you know, two weeks in Barcelona, just eating and drinking and <laughs> you know, kind of having fun. And, yeah, but Barcelona's I went, that city. <laughs> yeah, man. I, and so I went to, you know, I went to Toulon's France and just out of sheer will, I broke the world record. And mm-hmm. it was such a personal victory for me that I, I you know, it, it was, it, felt great to beat the, you know, the guy who won the Olympics. But I remember being back in my hotel room and I got out of the shower getting ready for a, they do a banquet dinner the night of, and, mm-hmm. but I got out of the shower and I looked myself in the mirror and just pumped my fist all alone because it was such a personal victory and yes. nobody else was around, yes. you know, and yes, my team celebrated on that victory and, it was one of those things that I think the community that sur- surrounded me and helped me, it was, you know, it was something that I was able to bring home. But it, I, re- I can remember, you know, and outside winning the gold medal in 96, that personal victory just changed the way that I just felt about myself. So, Dan, that was the great thing. You were able to break the world record for the decathlon, a record that stood for nearly seven years after the adversity of not making the 92 Olympics. Just three months later, you break the world record. And then you go on to win the world championships in 1993 and 1995, exhibiting dominance in your sport. And then you get to the 1996 Olympics, Olympic Games in Atlanta, U.S. soil, uh, just redemption time for you. Talk about that entire process and your mindset in finally making the games and looking to be victorious and claim that gold medal, as well as the bombing that happened. I mean, a lot of weird things that went on reflect on your moment in Atlanta. You know, what, what was interesting in, um, in 1992, the, the, the lessons I learned in 92 were I, I need to be ready for adverse conditions. It was so hot and humid in New Orleans that I didn't do the proper things I needed to do to prepare for that competition. And I, I was hot. I was tired. But I over, you know, the feelings that I had is like, oh, I'm loose. I'm warm. But I wasn't. I needed to, I needed to get more runs down the runway. I needed to take better care of myself, but I needed an A, you know, when you have an A plan, you need a B plan, you need a C plan, you need a D plan, you know, you need a plan for any scenario. And I, mm-hmm. I became a different athlete after I failed in 92. And mm-hmm. that athlete, I believe, and I think this is where coach Rick Sloan really came in, was up until that point, I was a, I'm a coachable athlete. Uh, I cared about winning. I certainly wanted to win. But I just was doing what my coaches asked me to do. But it wasn't until after 92 that I began to take personal ownership of my successes and failures. You know, that's deep after you were like an elite athlete. That's crazy, Dan. Well, and and that's and that's one of the things that I try to talk to when I coached at Arizona State University. You know, we we got a pole vault coach who just loves to micromanage. You know, I want to move your step back this far and I want you to move your pole, your hand grip up two inches and just goes on and on. And there's in the sport of track and field, it's easy to do that. You know, you tell somebody the exact adjustments they need to make, 
Um, but it was only when I failed that I realized, you know what, I could go to a competition without my coach and I could get this thing figured out myself. Um, I didn't need somebody to micromanage everything. And coach Rick Sloan at one point even looked at me and said, you know, I work for you. I am your coach, but you're in charge of this whole thing. And for years as an athlete, you think, well, I'm the coach is driving the bus. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm just doing what the coach says, but it really changed my mindset. Now I had, I, I had total control. I had to, I had to grow up. I had to be mature enough to act, um, react and be a professional athlete at that time. And so that was a big learning point for me. And I think I was so successful in the next world championship and the next one after that, because, um, because of what happened in 92. And then when we got to 1996, you know, it, it wasn't like the stars were aligned. It was my time. I really believed that it was just, I was, it was my time. I was ready. Um, and nobody could have convinced me differently, but I had a fantastic Olympic experience and I can remember it just, it went kind of like this is that, you know, when I got to Atlanta about 10 days before the competition, I walked through the opening ceremonies. I got a chance to see other athletes compete. My wife and I were there when the uh, Magnificent Seven won the gymnastics gold medal. Phenomenal. To see Amy Van Dyke swim, Tom Dolan. And when I was watching other athletes, I couldn't wait for it to be my turn. And then when it was actually my turn, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so stressful. I can't wait for it to be over. Mm. And then when it was over, you think to yourself, wow, I can't wait to do that again. Yeah. So you think a lot of different things, but you know, so it, it was, it was a fantastic experience, but there were some interesting moments as well. So mm -hmm. I can remember I was in Centennial Olympic park two hours before the bomb went off. I was, I was signing autographs and doing, doing a thing for um, the Texas, uh, Dallas, Texas chamber of commerce. They were hoping to bid for the 2008 Olympic games. Mm -hmm. And so they brought a big crew in and I sat and, I sat and signed autographs for a couple hours, but I was in Olympic Park. And then I, you know, I went back to my hotel. I went to bed. And the next morning I wake up and you see the news. It's like, oh, a bomb went off in, and your bomb went off in Centennial Park. And you're like, I was just there last night. But my first thought was, and I'm sure it's like many athletes this year, don't cancel my event. Please don't let it affect the fact that I'm here trying to win an Olympic gold medal. Yes. And, you know, luckily nothing got delayed. Nothing got canceled. To be honest, you're very selfish at that moment. You're very selfish to think this is all about me right now, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but when it's only after it's all over and said and done, you go, wow, that was pretty selfish of me. But the pursuit of an Olympic medal, the pursuit of being an Olympic athlete is kind of a selfish thing in itself. You're, 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 you're you know, you have a team around you that's helping you get there, but the pursuit of it, um, you have to be a little bit selfish. And, mm -hmm. and that, that bombing, I thought, oh, no, I'm so ready to win this thing. Um, but, you know, the competition went on, and, and I was happy that, you know, nothing changed. But when it got to my turn to, to compete, you know, I did some things differently in 96 than I, than I did in 92. So one of the things I did, you hear stories about people not getting up in time, catching the bus, getting over from the – from from the athletes village i didn't stay in the athletes village i stayed right next door to the stadium at a hampton inn uh -huh. and so i was i was literally walking distance to the practice track 
So all I had to do was just get up and actually there were little golf carts that just buzz you right over. So I, I, you know, but I remember the night before I competed, I could look out my window and I could see the Olympic stadium. Um, and so it was just, I was right there, but I remember before I went to the grocery store and I bought, you know, my, bought my cereal and my fruits and got my snacks and everything all set up because you're out there two days. You got to put a lot of stuff in your bags. You're just chomping on something you're eating, eating during the competition. Yep. So the first day goes by and I, you know, had a good day, not my best day, but I was in, I was, I was the leader. I took the lead after the third event, the shot put, and we got back to the hotel. Well, the one thing about a hotel in that part of Atlanta is there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of restaurants. So we had to call and we called this Italian company, Italian food place, and they brought us some pizza and pasta and salad and stuff. And so it was myself and my girlfriend, who's my wife now, my massage therapist, and my two coaches. And we all just, you know, ate in the lobby and just, you know, got a lot of food in us before I, I went to bed. <clears throat> but the next morning, I woke up and I got up, you know, I'm up at 6.30, 7 o'clock. I got to be at the track by, you know, 8.39 for a race at 10. I start looking around. I think, all right, what am I going to have for breakfast here? You know, I'll get some cereal in me. I'll get some fruit in me. There was a box of cold pizza sitting there. <laughs> I ate three pieces of cold pizza, and I went to the track and won the gold medal that day. And so people say, well, what do you eat when you compete? It's like, man, just – It, it ate Wheaties. Com- <laughs> it was comfort food, and it was, it was a great experience. But I just, it just felt right at the moment. You know, it's like, man, I'm going to eat that, I'm gonna eat that pizza. And I got there and, you know, there were, there were some ups and, ups and downs on day two, but probably one of my most memorable moments, I was in the stadium throwing the javelin when Michael Johnson ran the 200 meters in the gold shoes. That's right. That, ooh, 1932, right? 1932, yeah. The world record and, I mean, the gold shoes. Yes, indeed. To be in that stadium and you see the flashes go up. I mean, just uh, thousands of people were taking pictures, but Michael crosses the line. It's a new world record. I'm at the javelin, and so I catch up with him on the first turn, and he's in another zone. He probably doesn't even remember me talking to him. Lifted me to another level. I was throwing well, and I think I had one throw left to go. He runs the 200, and then I go out, and the next throw, I throw a personal best to lengthen my lead. And then I'm able to run, <clears throat> I'm able to, I'm able to cruise just a little bit more in the 1500 meters. So it was just part, being part of that night. There were a couple other gold medals that gave out, but my greatest gift of the whole thing was I crossed the finish line in the 15 and I win. I kiss, you know, mom on one side of the stadium and dad on the other side of the stadium. And then you go underneath and somebody comes over and they, they you got to go to drug testing. You, you, you yeah. pee in a cup. And, yep. and so immediately, and so then somebody comes over and says, you know, um, we're going to give you your, we're going to do the, we're going to do the ceremony, the medal ceremony tonight. And I thought, well, tonight I was the last event. And you, if you ever been to track meet, that track meet's over. Boom. I mean, the stadium clears out right away. This lady was saying, Nope, we're going to give you the award tonight. And I was just like, okay, but I didn't bring my award uniform. So I had to borrow Michael Johnson's top, Carl Lewis's bottoms. Whoa, that's, and, that's royalty right there. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so then I went out there, and when they walked us out to get the medals, nobody had left the stadium. Everybody right. stayed. And that's so right. in Atlanta, under a starry night, 
I got to listen to the national anthem with 100,000 people in, in the Olympic Stadium. And you think about it, it's like, you know what? You know, all the, all the running and the training and the failure in 92, mm-hmm. and you dream about what's it going to be like if I, when I get that gold medal? What's it going to be like? And so you have all these scenarios in your head. And honestly, the scenario that I experienced wasn't, wasn't what I had thought it was going to be but it was still glorious nonetheless. So, I mean, we build these pictures in our minds and it's usually never the way it goes. Yes. It's just a, it's just another cool experience. So <clears throat> it was, I was thrilled to be able to do that, but that's what I remember about the Olympic games. Well, Dan, that's a tremendous, tremendous reflection of uh, the highlight of your illustrious career. Wow, what an honor to speak with Mr. Dan O'Brien on the 15th episode of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. Dan is 1996 gold medalist, decathlete, once known as the world's greatest athlete. So, Dan, you, you had injury problems that prevented you from defending your gold medal in Sydney in 2000 and as well returning to the Olympic Games in Athens uh, for, 2000, for the 2004 Games. Your career ebbs and flows have gone through ebbs and flows, but when you were when you were at your peak, you were by far the best athlete in the world for sure. You dominated the decathlons. So um, talk about how how disappointing was it for you not to defend your Olympic gold, or at least be able to return to the Olympic Games once again. Well, one of the things that people don't realize or understand it it's even kind of hard for me to think about it's like you've only been to one olympics well i went in 1988 and i went to the trials in 88 anyways and i was you know i was already 20 22 in 92 at the trials i'm 26 and then i win at age 30 and so i should have gone to the two olympics before 96 Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm instead of trying to go to the two Olympics after 96. And so, but still at age 30, I felt pretty, I felt pretty good. I think I just matured. My body matured a little bit later. Yeah. So I felt still healthy. Um, but I did come back and win the gold medal at the Goodwill Games in 1998. And I was at Randall's Island right outside of Manhattan. Yes, sir. Michael and I both helped promote the track and field portion of the Goodwill Games. Absolutely. So we were, all year long, we were promoting the Goodwill Games. And so when it came time for us to compete, we had to come through and win. What was strange about that is they had us staying in Times Square. But uh, every day we went out to, every day, it was not, it was Randall's Island. It wasn't Randall's Island. It was Hofstra University, way mm-hmm. out in Long Island. So it was about an hour drive every time we went out there. Um, but it was, it was a cool experience. But yeah, I tried to go to the 2000 Games and defend my title. And I was having a rough year because just little things. I had heel bruises and, you know, just small muscle strains. But then two weeks before the Olympic trials, I tore my planner, like plantar fasciitis on the bottom of your foot. I tore my planner and I wasn't able to compete at those trials. And then again, I thought, well, in 2004, I'm feeling pretty good. I'll be the oldest guy ever to compete. I just wasn't able to pull it off. You get that old, you can't sustain the training. And, and at that time, I didn't know how to change my training. I still was training with Coach Rick Sloan at Washington State University, and you're in kind of the collegiate system. I think if I had taken, you know, if I, if I was away from the collegiate system, we could have trained a little bit differently. And I, I think I would have done things a little bit smarter, a little bit differently, and, and I might have been able to go to another Olympics, but I, I just didn't have the knowledge at that time on how to, 
on how to make those changes. You had to be true to yourself. You had to be true to the regimen and routine that made you the best in the world. I mean, it's understandable. There's certain yeah. benchmarks that you have to meet, whether it's in the weight room or on the track that you think, okay, now I'm ready. Um, and what's tough to identify is as you get older, um, and a guy like Dwight Phillips, uh, who's a long jumper, a gold mm -hmm. medalist in the long jump, he was a fantastic sprinter, but he was a big squatter in the weight room, and he loved to squat 400 pounds. He knew if he could squat 400 pounds, he could long jump 28 feet. But as wow. he got older, he wasn't able to squat 400 pounds, and it really upset him, but he realized, look, I don't need to always do that to run that fast or jump that far. And, but sometimes it's, it's a hard lesson to learn because you want to just continue the regimen that you were successful in. And I needed to, you know, maybe take one of the training days or go hard for a couple of days and have a day off. I needed to take more rest as I got older and I just didn't. And because I couldn't sustain it, I just, I didn't think I was able to go back and win. Came back to New York in 2009, world record for the fastest game of hopscotch. Now, is that still the world record? No. Oh, no, okay. I was about to, okay, because your records last a long time. I'm just saying that the Decathlon record lasted seven years. So, so just, that, that, <laughs> was, that was really interesting. Um, Crayola, Crayon, the Crayon Company, yeah. um, they were doing an, they, uh, a summer fitness program. Mm -hmm. And they wanted kids to log onto their website and pledge so many hours a day that they're going to play outside and get, get physical exercise. Mm -hmm. And so I was the spokesperson for the program. And to kick it off, they wanted me to try to break the world record in the game of hopscotch at Chelsea Piers in, uh, in New York. And they told me what it was all about. And I said, okay, I'll give it a go. And in my driveway, I set up, I, I drew out the hopscotch course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't even get close to the world record, not even close in practice. And so I show up in New York, I'm getting ready to do this. And I tell the people from Crayola at the dinner two nights before, and I say, I don't know if I can get this record. You know, I, mm -hmm. th this is going to be really hard. And some lady said, oh my gosh, it means so much to us if you could get the record. And I was like, oh man, now I'm under pressure. <laughs> but I did all the promotions and everything. And then it was time to do it. We were outside and it rained a little bit. Because it rained, my stone wasn't sliding. So you got to throw the stone to the number, hopscotch out, and bring it back. And because it was a little bit tacky on the surface, my stone was just like thud, thud, and it would stop just where exactly. And so I hit all my numbers. Ooh. I broke the record. And it took me, I'll bet, about an hour, hour and a half. And, and I mean, my car was leaving at 2 o'clock. It was like 1.40. And uh -huh. I was like, man, I got to get out of here in 10 minutes. <clears throat> and we were still at it just trying to break this record. And finally, when I did, all these kids, about 100 kids, jumped on me and mobbed me. It was, it was great fun. <laughs> wow, that's so deep. That's so deep. So, Dan, now we're going to get to some current events. Now, uh, when it comes to the decathlon, U.S. decathletes, the name Bruce Jenner comes up, and he's the face of decathlon, of uh, the history of uh, the decathlon with American athletes. Um, what is your take on the change, the transition that uh, Bruce Jenner made to become Caitlyn Jenner? Uh, it's very deep, uh, says a lot. What's your take on, on this part of his life right now? Well, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, to me, to say the least, because I, I know Bruce Jenner, but I don't know Caitlyn. The last time I saw Bruce Jenner was 2012 at the Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon. Yep. And then since then he's transitioned, but I haven't, I haven't met Caitlin, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, people ask me about it and, you know, I'm just not sure what to say. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I haven't had anybody in my family, you know, do anything like that. And yeah. so it, it's hard to kind of, you know, think, well, what, what would, you know, if he was close to me, what, you know, what would I say? And, and some other yeah. decathletes know Bruce better than I do. <clears throat> but I knew Bruce when I was trying to become Bruce, you know, mm -hmm. um, and he was really kind of hypercritical of, you know, how I was going about it and becoming the world's greatest athlete. And mm. so just, just, but that was, that's just his way trying to hold on a little bit to, you know, look, if another American comes along and wins a gold medal, I won't be the last guy to have done it. You know, oh. it's a tough club to get into. And mm. the guys who went before you are not always rooting for the guy who comes after you, you know, True. but Bruce True. and I were, you know, we were, we were good friends and he was a big inspiration to me. Uh, but uh, you know, what's odd now is, you know, I just, I'm not really sure what to think about it. I'm certainly accepting of it, mm -hmm. but you know, I don't know the motivation behind it. And if it makes Caitlin happy, then, you know, more power, more power to her. Certainly. Um, but the message isn't for me yeah, to yeah, decipher yeah. really, you know, I, I think mm -hmm. he's doing a great job on, on certainly what it means to, uh, to live your life, mm -hmm. to, to, to make the changes, to be happy in your life. And his story of overcoming the way that he felt, what's odd to me is, you know, he had the tiger by the tail. He had the world at the, in the palm of his hand when he won the gold medal. Mm -hmm. And for him to say that wasn't him, is is a hard thing for me to kind of accept it's like wait a minute he was the world's greatest athlete just the same as i was yeah. you know the guy had millions of dollars in endorsements at the time he was all-american guy and for him to look back and go well that that was a different bruce than the way he felt his entire life it's just like wow that that's a, that's a, that's just a little bit shocking so um i don't know just just different interesting times that that you know, you look at somebody like that who you were that close to and see them now. And it's just like, wow, you know, that's that's what that's what a difference, you know, 20 years, 20 years can certainly make. But, you know, I, I'm proud. I'm proud of I'm proud of Caitlin for, you know, doing what doing what she thinks is, is the right thing to do. Um, but it, it's it's again, like I said, I just I, it's hard for me to find the context of, you know, what what do you really feel about that? It's like, I'm not sure, you know, happy that you're doing it. But it's it's hard to it's hard to see where it fits in in, in my values. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is the 15th episode of Where They At. My name is Nabata House featuring 1996 Olympic gold medalist, once the world's greatest athlete. Mr. Dan O'Brien. So Dan, now, of course, the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo have been postponed to 2021. So now the decathlon event is coming up and the best American hope is uh, Solomon Simmons. And he's he's interesting athlete for sure. Uh, now, will the year postponement help Solomon be able to to work on his game and make sure he corrects some of his flaws so he could be able to go compete against Damian Warner and, and Nikolaj Carl and, and Marcel Ebo, those top decathletes. Will Solomon Simmons be able to get to their level and be able to overtake them for gold next year in 2021? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, especially a, a kid, a, a guy like Solomon Simmons, he's only a couple years removed from college. and. I've seen him compete on a number of occasions. He 
needs to clean up some areas in the decathlon. He is, you know, you, you know who he reminds me of is he reminds me of uh, Rafer Johnson. Fast, good runner, strong, and he excels in the same areas that Rafer did. And Rafer was a fantastic shot putter, good discus thrower, good javelin thrower. Solomon's, Solomon is a big, strong guy. Um, but for somebody like him, I think it only can benefit him to get more seasoning, uh, to put another year of training under his belt, to really clean up those field events. But the decathlon, you're right. The decathlon has really, um, is really been a strong event internationally over the last few years. And the United States hasn't had a guy to really contend, to really fight for those medals. So, um, you know, I think Solomon's going to be maybe the next great American decathlete. There's a, there's a kid at the University of Georgia, though, right now. He's just Ooh. a freshman. His name's Kyle Garland. Wow. He's from, he's from the Philadelphia area. Okay. But um, he was the SEC Indoor Freshman of the Year. But he's training with Marcel Weibo at Georgia. Okay. And Petros Kipriano, who's the coach at Georgia. But there's also, um, there's also you know, two other great Estonian decathletes at the University of Georgia. And so he's got a great training group, but he's a two-time U.S. junior champion. But this guy is a fast runner. He's almost a seven-foot high jumper. He does everything really, really well. And he's, wow. I think he's somebody, this is going to give him an extra year now as well to get a little bit more seasoning. And, and there's even a young heptathlete at Georgia named Anna, named Anna Hall. Mm-hmm. who was a you know a world junior champ you know she she probably would have placed in the top three or four in the heptathlon at the ncaa meet this year she was planning on 2024 now okay. she can look and maybe be a factor with one year away wow that's right that's right wow now can anybody get to ten thousand points in the decathlon can that be done sooner than later Oof. yeah i don't think so you know, the, okay. you, think, you think about how good an athlete Ashton Eaton was in the running events. Okay. So mm-hmm. strong. He's the best sprinter that, a, that the decathlon has ever produced. You know, I was a pretty good sprinter from the hundred meters to the 400, but Ashton was even better. And he puts a good long, and he puts a good hurdles in there and he can run the 1500 meters. <clears throat> it, you know, guys are, what's, what's the world record? 91, oh, 20, 27 around that. Yeah. 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 91, 27. You're talking about another 800 points. Impossible. Mm-hmm. Unless somebody came, I mean, somebody has got to come along. They got to pull vault 19 feet. They got to throw 55 feet in the shot put. They just don't, that, that person doesn't exist. You're, you can't be good in all of them. You can be very good in most of them, but you can't be world-class in every single event. And so, um, yeah, 10,000, I think is, 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 uh, is a pipe dream. Can some, some can somebody score 9,200? Can somebody score 9,300? Maybe, but, uh, you know, I, I used to think that 9,000 was a cap and I was going to go over that and then 9,100 got beat. So, um, in, in fantastic conditions on a perfect day. Now, Kevin Meyer, the cat from France, he has the world record at 9,126 points. Uh, I don't see him in the world rankings. What's up with that? He didn't finish a decathlon this last year. He went to, um, uh, he got a qualifier. His qualifier was the world record from the year before. And then in 2019, he waited till the world championships to do his first decathlon and he had to withdraw. And that was the only event that he did that year. So yeah, that takes him, that takes him out of the world rankings. The decathlon is an event 
that you have to keep grinding. You have to keep participating. You have to, to stay sharp. So how can a cat like Kevin Meyer uh, go in and, and think that he can just jump in and do any decathlon and, and, and be near world record pace? I mean, that, that's the wrong mindset to have. <laughs> well, it was. And he was, it was interesting because he, um, he failed at the European Championships to, to get a mark in the, in the long jump. And mm. so he was the best guy in Europe. He, he, he doesn't win the European title, but he comes back and breaks the world record in a very similar fashion that I did in 1992 at that same track meet to Lance France. Mm -hmm. And so he had a big redemption competition, but, you know, I think he thought that the world championships was just going to be easy, but he also was a guy who complained a little bit about Doha. We were, we were in Doha cutter for the world championships, he complained about the weather and he complained about the travel and he complained about the food. And right away you see that he was putting a negative spin on everything. And, and I told people after day one, I said, you know what? He, he doesn't look like himself. He doesn't look as powerful. He doesn't look explosive as explosive. Uh. And he ended up dropping out on the second day. And, you know, I just, I hope this isn't an event that holds him back because he is a great athlete. But when you go into every decathlon and you think it's going to be perfect and give you perfect conditions, it doesn't happen like that. You've got to be ready for the adversity. You've got to be a guy who grinds and fights. So Dan, uh, we're uh, going to conclude uh, the podcast with this segment that I do with all my guests. It's uh, random questions, uh, fast pace. Uh, this segment's called Sprint Dash because of you being a, a track and field superstar. And if you're a baseball player, it'll be hit and run. If you're a football player, it'll be called no huddle. If you're a basketball player, it'll be called fast break. But this for you is called Sprint Dash. So um, now the first question, first question. Name the childhood friend that you keep in touch with to this day. Don Sherman, my, my first chair trumpet buddy. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Next question. Next question. Name the Olympic city, past, present, or future that you would have loved to compete in because all of the cities that have hosted the summer games are, are unique to say the least. So which city, past, present, or future that has hosted the summer games would you have loved to compete in? I would have loved to have competed in Tokyo, Japan. I won my first world title there in 1991 and was thrilled with the, with the city, just enamored with how people got around and the subway system. And I, I, I truly expected, um, I truly expect Tokyo, Japan to blow every other opening ceremonies away. They're going to go all out. They're going to try to do a much better job than, than, uh, than they did in uh, Athens or excuse me, than they did in Rio. Oh, Without a doubt, I think it's going to be amazing for sure. And 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 Tokyo, I've been there a couple of times, and it's it's New York with tranquility and etiquette. There you go. <laughs> now, next question. Next question. The most bizarre Olympian you've encountered. This Olympian could have competed in any event. Wow, most bizarre Olympian. Gee whiz, that's a good question. I, I can't, I can't think of anything very, very fast. Um, uh, you know, Rulon Gardner comes to mind. He's an incredible guy. You know, he's got a crazy story too. The guy's from Wyoming. He lost a few toes in 
in, uh, in, for, from frostbite. He got in a snowmobile accident. This guy's got an amazing story and an amazing journey. And even after the accident, he still tried to go back to the Olympics and wrestle. But he's a heavyweight guy, just big, cuddly, lovable. Speaking of wrestler, like a, a real popular wrestler, Kurt Angle was in yes. your Olympics as well, you know? Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. I watched his gold medal match just a couple of weeks ago on, on YouTube, and he was just so motivated to, um, to, to win for his father. Who yes. passed away? Who passed away a, a year before? Which songs have to be in your playlist? It could be from now when you train or back in the day. Uh, so you know which songs really got you amped to be able to to compete and or train to your fullest ability. Oof! Um, Shaka Khan through the fire. Yeah, always, always on my running playlist. Um, mm -hmm. Two songs that I actually just added was Post Malone Circles. Okay. All right. Dang. Just because it's kind of groovy, kind of jazzy. Mm -hmm. and, then I, and, and then I added Walking on a Dream, Empire of the Sun. Okay. Right. But yeah, you know, I got a couple of, I, I did, I got a couple of running playlists and it, it's old, man. I like, I like a little heavy metal. So I'll put some, I, you know, I put some Iron Maiden in there, but no, I'm not, you know, I got Kanye West on here. I got Eminem. You know, but uh, so, yeah, just uh, and I like soundtracks. OK, and oh. one of my favorite soundtracks is uh, from Romeo Must Die. When I was in college, I go to the I go to the music store and I would buy a Herb Alpert album Ooh, yep. and then I would follow it up with a, um, you know, like a Brian McKnight. And then yes. I'd get and then I'd get like, you know, Ronnie James Dio and the guy would look at me and go man you got a strange taste in music but that's what playing music did for me as a youngster it yes. really made me appreciate all kinds of music Eclectic. one of my favorite movies still to this day um Lush Life oh yeah yeah with Jeff Goldblum right yes. and, and Forrest Whitaker right just musicians going from club to club just playing making a living Yes, but sir. I tell you what, though, my, one one thing my wife and I have really enjoyed together is we have a love for Brian McKnight. Oh, he's a beast of an artist, and and he can ball too. He's a killing basketball player. Seen him a dozen times in concert, and every time he comes to Arizona, we go and see him. But you know, we know every single song, we got every single album, so we're Brian McKnight fans. That's right. Shout out to Brian McKnight. You know, he's from Buffalo, and his brother sings with Take Six, and you know, Take Six That's is right. one of the great yeah. groups. You know, for sure. The last time we saw him, he had his sons on stage with him, and they sang the national anthem, and it was oh. awesome. Yeah. Wow, I'm sure there was some crazy harmony going on for sure. Now. The athlete, dead or alive, you would want to compete against, and in which sport? Compete against? Well, you know, I would have loved to have competed against Daly Thompson in the decathlon, okay? He won mm -hmm. the gold in 80 and 84. Ooh, but, yeah. then, but then I always think, you know what? If I could have just played against Dennis Rodman at one point, ooh, just to give him <laughs> one in the ribs, you know? He was like, I, I love watching the NBA, but man, Dennis Rodman was one of those guys I just love to hate. The nasty Detroit Pistons, man. That's right. I just, I just, right. I wanted somebody to put Rodman in his place. So that's right. The so, bad that boys. Been fun. I read in your book that you're into uh, sappy Hollywood endings and everything. Which film or films do you go back to check out over and over again because of those endings? Uh, but love affair. That that's I, I I fall for that you know, 
there's a um I, I'm kind of a I, I'm a romantic in the in the sense that I, I like the kind of movies. I like Blade Runner, you know, with Harrison Ford. It's oh. the, it's the it's the lonely it's the lonely hero guy, you know. Yeah. I like uh, Sharky's Machine with Burt Reynolds, you know. It's ah. just the, the 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 guy who gets the girl at the end, I guess. So uh -huh. that's that's what I mean by sappy endings. But you know, Blade Runner is one of my favorite favorite movies, science fiction. And then you put a little love story in it as well. Like, ah, beautiful ending. Now, the last but not least for the Sprint Dash segment, you've uh, been endorsed by so many companies like Versace, like Reebok uh, and everything. Now, which company would you want to have an endorsement deal with now? Because we've had a lot of new innovative companies come out within the last uh, 20 years or so, which has been the uh, been the century, the 21st century. So, so name that company you would love to have an endorsement with right now. Well, you know, Reebok was great when we did those ads. I switched to Nike in 1994 and we had a great relationship. They, you know, they are the king of sports and they, they honestly, they make the shoes to the specifications of their top level athletes. I got, mm. I got shoes made to fit my feet perfectly. Wow. Um, but you know, when I, when I think about other companies, man, I think it would be really fun to be with Apple especially track and field person, how could Apple and their technology help me as a competing athlete and some of the things that they could, they could do. It would have been great to have an Apple watch, you know, 20 years before it's time or, you know, just, just, I just, they're, they're such an innovative company. Then, and there's somebody who I, you know, I'm a, I'm an Apple user. They make it easy. They make it easy for me. So just that's the first thing that popped into my, popped in my head, you know, and anytime you want to give me a, a candy bar, a candy bar endorsement, Hook, hook me up, you know, get Mars bars, you know, whatever. That's, that's, that's where, that's my, that's my sweet spot right there. Is oh, get, wow. I got a cabinet full. It's hard not to keep reaching for those peanut M&Ms, you know? <laughs> oh, those are the best. Now, my last question for you, Dan. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the 15th episode of Where They At, the Decathlon. Uh, we have the 10 events in the decathlon, of course, and it's, it goes by this order. Day one is the 100 meters, the long jump, shot put, high jump, 400 meters. Then day two, uh, the decathlon event continues with 110 meter hurdles, um, the discus throw, pole vault, javelin throw, and the 1500 meters. If it was up to you, how would you switch the order of the decathlon to be able to fit you, Dan O'Brien? If we could switch the order around, I would love to run the 1500 meters earlier in the day. It's the last event. It's the one you dread the most. If we mm -hmm. started with it and then we got a big break and we moved on to some of the other events, then you get it done. Otherwise, you're thinking about it all day long. You know? <laughs> so day one, first thing, 1,500 meters, right? Knock it out. Just knock it out. Boom. You know, <laughs> just get it out, get it out. And then I breathe easy the rest of the time. It's like, oh, the rest of the events are kind of fun. You know, yes. but if we, could, if we could exchange it with something, man, put the triple jump in there. Put the 200 meters in there. This is the conversation you have a lot with multi-event athletes. It's like, well, if we could change it with something, what would you do, you know? Distance runners say, well, put in the steeplechase, put in a 5K. Nobody wants to run farther. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Because it, it, it would have to be first if, if the distance was that much. That's for sure. That's sure. But uh, wow. But Mr. Dan O'Brien, I want to thank you so much for the honor 
And I want to thank you for your time, for your insight, for your reflection on, on your illustrious career and the steps you had to take to get there, uh, which, is, which is so inspiring, you know, of you getting through adversity. Uh, it's just amazing. And I was inspired to, to interview you today. And I want to, wow, thank you so much for coming on the 15th episode of Where They At. I really appreciate you, sir. And, and thanks for your time. Well, thank you. I, I love being here. And, you know, now I, now I got something else I can download for my podcast. I, I started listening to podcasts quite a few years ago and just it's, it's all I listen to now. So it's my pleasure. It's nice talking to you and, you know, keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the 15th episode of Where They At with 1996 Olympic gold medalist, once the world's greatest athlete, great, one of the great decathletes of all time, Mr. Dan O'Brien. I want to thank him for, for his presence and for the knowledge and for the insight and for the inspiration that he provided on the show. What a career he's had and what a story, what a life he's had for sure. Um, and if you like the music, you can go check it out on my website, which is N-A-B-A-T-E-I-S-L-E-S.com. That's nabateisles.com. And the music is from my album, Eclectic Excursions, which is available also on Amazon, on Google Play, on Apple Music, on Tidal, on Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. So if you like the music, please feel free to check it out. And I want to thank all of you once again for, for delving into this show that I'm very proud to um, be able to produce and bring out to all of you. Uh, it's just such a, a privilege to talk to these wonderful athletes and especially Dan O'Brien. My name is Nabate Isles and thank you all once again. And there will be another episode of Where They At coming very soon. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day. God bless. And also remember, be safe, be healthy, and stay at home. And we will get through the storm of COVID-19. No doubt about it. Thanks again, everyone. Be blessed. Bye-bye.